You can take your Bibles and turn along with me to Romans chapter 1, if you would, please. Romans chapter 1. We began this series in the book of Romans back in October. And you may recall that I compared our study of the book of Romans to climbing Mount Everest. I'm not the first one to have done so. But as I said at the outset of this series, Romans has been called affectionately and respectfully the Mount Everest of Scripture. It's referred to as the Mount Everest of Scripture in part because it is Paul's longest letter. But more than that, it is the letter in which Paul most thoroughly and logically and beautifully lays out and defends the truth of the gospel message. Arguably, Romans stands above all the other books in the biblical horizon for its clear and extensive articulation of glorious gospel realities. And as I said then, we'll be climbing this great peak together, walking these glorious gospel trails with each other. Some parts of the journey will take us to dizzying heights, as we gaze over the vast and gloriously limitless vistas of God's grace. Other parts of our trek through Romans will take us down into dark and bottomless chasms of human depravity and lostness of soul. This morning, together, we've come to one of these seemingly bottomless chasms of human depravity and lostness. But as I hope we'll see today, these deep, dark caverns of depravity serve also to highlight by way of contrast the shining and glorious summits of God's grace in the gospel. I've laid out the book of Romans into three sections. God's gospel of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, we see in chapters 1 through 3, grace in chapters 4 through 11, and gratitude in chapters 12 through 16. And so already here in chapter 1, we are well into the guilt section of this letter. And at the end of this section, in chapter 3, Paul will summarize humanity's universal guilt before God in this way. Romans 3.9, he says both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Humanity can be divided up into two large groups, those who are Jews and those who are not. But all are under sin, Paul says. Romans 3.10, it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is clearly driving his argument to a point. And the point is we're all guilty. Guilty before the God who made us. Guilty of sin and rebellion. So here in chapter 1, Paul is beginning to make this argument that every person has sinned and stands guilty before God our Creator. But he begins with the Gentiles, non-Jews, Greeks. 
Paul has in verse 18 of chapter 1, explained that God's wrath against sin is present and active in the world today. God is actively pouring out His wrath even today. Yes, there is a future wrath to be received by those who continue in their unbelief and rebellion, but there is a present wrath of God among us. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul then explains further why God's wrath is revealed from heaven. Why is it present in the world today? Verse 19, look with me there. Romans 1.19, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In our text this morning beginning in verse 26 and going through the end of the chapter, Paul is further expanding on what he has said in verse 24, describing in greater detail how men and women have been carried away by their own lusts and desires of their hearts into every kind of impurity and sin. And in doing so, Paul is going to take us down some pretty dark paths. The dark paths that lead us down into the bleakness of the unregenerated human heart. So join with me in verse 26 as I read for us through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 1 verse 26 as we begin our descent into human depravity. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. 
And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Beloved, this is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for giving us this word. You've given it to us as a warning. You've given it to us as a wake-up call. You've given it to us to arrest us out of our ease and comfort. You want us to come face to face with the reality of our rebellion, the truth of our sin, and the darkness of our hearts. So help us with eyes wide open to look within and see that there resides guilt. To see inside ourselves the sin and rebellion that have left us without excuse before the God who has made us. But also, Lord, let us see Christ whom you have sent to rescue us from the darkness of our own hearts and the depth of our own sin. Shine the light of Christ in the midst of the darkness today. Show us Christ that we may follow him into the light of day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we descend into the depths of human depravity, I want us to come across three checkpoints along the way. Three checkpoints along the way which will help us to understand human sin and depravity so that we might flee it and find mercy at the cross. Checkpoint number one, sin flows from idolatry, which is the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. Now, this comes right out of verse 26 in the first three words, for this reason. You may recall from last week that Paul is laying out an argument here. He, has a, he, he is prone to write long sentences that have lots of logical connections, and this is one of those logical connections. Paul is attaching what he's about to say in verse 26 and connecting it cl- closely to verse 25. So we have to follow the flow of his logic a little bit. Why, in verse 26, did God give them over to degrading passions? The reason is found in verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The root cause of all sin is idolatry. And idolatry is the exchanging of God's truth for a lie. It's it's the exchanging of the worship of the true God for false gods. God has revealed himself in nature. Romans 1 makes that abundantly clear. In the world, God has created. He has given testimony and evidence of himself, of his own existence, of his glory, of his power, of his creativity, of his care for his creation. All of it is evident and on display in the creation he has made. And the rejection of God and his truth is not because of a lack of knowledge or a lack of evidence, 
Far from it. Rather, the rejection of mankind has come because it is man's love for sin more than righteousness. Man's love for a lie more than the truth. So mankind rejects God, refuses to worship God or give Him thanks. And that is the essence of what we were created to do. We're created to worship God and give Him thanks as the giver of all good gifts. But mankind has refused to do this. And so God gives people over to their sins. He releases people to go and do what they want to do. He gives them over to themselves. In verses 24, 26, and 28, three times, it says God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. And as we saw last week, this is an act of divine judicial abandonment. This is part of the wrath of God present in the world today as God gives people over to their own sins, gives people over to their rebellion and the lusts of their heart. He simply leaves people to themselves. They have rejected Him, so He rejects them. They have abandoned Him for their sins, so He abandons them to their sins which in turn takes them deeper and deeper into sin. They become futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart is darkened, verse 21. Professing to be wise, they actually become fools. Verse 22. And so in their depravity, they reject what is glorious and truly worthy of worship and instead worship just about anything but the God who created them. This is humanity's lost condition. It is true of every human being apart from the grace of God and the saving work of Jesus Christ. Sin flows from idolatry, and idolatry is nothing less than the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. Think about that. Whenever we sin, whenever you sin, whenever I sin, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And it's always an act of idolatry. It's what our first parents did in the garden. Satan tempted Eve and Adam. Said, hath God said? Did God really say that? Tempted Adam and Eve, saying, God knows that in the day you eat of this fruit, You'll be like Him. He's keeping good things from you. Causing Adam and Eve to be tempted to believe a lie and exchange the truth. That was an act of idolatry. Every sin is an act of idolatry. We think we know better. We think we know what's best for us. We think God is keeping good things from us. We want to enjoy what has been taken from us and We've been warned that it will kill us, it will hurt us, it will harm us, it will break us, it will bruise us, and nevertheless we want it, and we take it. Every sin is an act of idolatry. It's the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. That's the first checkpoint. Checkpoint number two, and this is the bulk of our passage, 
This idolatrous exchange leads to further sinful exchanges. Verses 26 through 31. Paul says, So for this reason, because of their idolatry, their act of exchanging the truth of God for a lie, God gave them over. He let them go. Again, as in verse 24, this divine giving over is an act of judicial abandonment. It is an outworking of the wrath of God against sin in the world today. In verse 24, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. And here in verse 26, God gives them over to degrading passions. So verse 26 is an expansion upon verse 24. Degrading passions, dishonorable passions, shameful passions. So what are these dishonorable, degrading passions that God gives them over to, lets them go all out for? Paul explains in the middle of verse 26 and 27, their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, it's no secret here that Paul is talking about homosexuality. The sin of homosexuality. The exchange of the truth of God for a lie, the exchange of the true worship of God for idolatry, resulted for some in the exchange of what is natural for what is unnatural. The same word exchanged is used both for the exchanging of the truth for a lie in verse 24 and exchanging what is natural for what is unnatural here in verse 26. So there's a lot of exchanging going on. There's a lot of swapping going on. There's a lot of trading in going on. Just as people exchange the truth of God for a lie on the vertical dimension of divine relationship, even so they go on to exchange the truth of God for a lie on the horizontal dimension of human relationship. When we aren't rightly related to God, this often results in us not being rightly related to others. When the vertical relationship with God is skewed, our horizontal relationships will often be skewed as well. Listen to what G.K. Beale says in his great book, We Become What We Worship. He says, a malfunction in one's relationship to God, that is idolatry, a malfunction in one's relationship to God brings the corresponding punishment of a malfunction in one's relationship with other humans. We can't have a broken relationship with God without having broken relationships with one another. We can't have a disfigured relationship with God without having disfigured relationships with one another. Now what does Paul mean when he speaks here of that which is natural and unnatural? 
Does he simply mean that they have exchanged what is customary and acceptable for what is not? No. It means much more than that. The term natural here refers to the natural order of things. The created order of things. The way things were created to be and designed to work. God made man and woman. And He made them different from each other. He made them complementary to each other. And this complementarity was most evident in the difference between their physical bodies. There were other differences, of course, but it was most evident in how they were made physically, anatomically. Man and woman are different. They were clearly designed to complement and complete each other right down to their physical anatomy. And within the confines of marriage, Male and female sexual intimacy would be a beautiful and symbolic expression of the oneness of husband and wife. This oneness where two anatomically different human beings come together in physical oneness, in sexual intimacy, for the purpose of pleasure, closeness, and reproduction is all by God's good purpose and design and is a gift to humanity. But like all of God's good gifts, mankind twists it and changes it. All sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman is outside of God's purpose and design. It is a twisting of the truth. It is a rejection of the truth of God for a lie. And ultimately, it is a rejection of God Himself. Idolatry leads us to seek fulfillment outside of God's purpose and design for us. And that is what Paul is highlighting here. The exchange of the truth of God for a lie has led them to exchange and abandon that which is natural and in keeping with God's created purpose and design, exchanging it for that which is unnatural and sinful these men and women were led by their desires and their desires burned within them and they acted upon their desires women with women and men with men committing indecent acts and shameless deeds now some have tried to soften this passage a bit by trying to argue that paul is Condemning here not homosexuality in general, but rather unwanted homosexual relationships, abusive homosexual relationships, or homosexual relationships with underage persons who can't consent. But there's no evidence for this whatsoever. The Bible is clear, and Paul is clear, that homosexuality is a sin and is a deviation from and a disfiguring of God's created design and intention. So why does Paul mention homosexuality here? Is he saying that homosexuality is the worst kind of sin? No, I don't think that's what Paul is trying to get across. I don't think that's his point. Is Paul saying that every idolater will eventually, given enough time, 
practice homosexuality? Again, no, I don't think that's Paul's point. I believe Paul is using the sin of homosexuality here as a particularly clear illustration of the deceptiveness of sin and idolatry. Because homosexuality is a particularly vivid example of the fallen human instinct and desire to turn away from God's clear order and design and embrace a lie. Just as God has clearly made evidence of His existence in the world that He has created, just as He has left testimony that continually bears witness of who He is, of His authority, of His creativity, of His power. And just as sinful individuals have refused to see that, refused to accept it, refused to believe it, and have suppressed that truth in unrighteousness, even so, sinful humanity has taken the clear differences between man and woman, the clear complementary nature of their physical makeup and have rejected that and said, no, we know better. No, this is what I want. Just as idolatry turns things upside down with worship being given to the creature rather than the creator, so homosexuality serves as a vivid example of sin's twisted interpretation of God's created designs for human beings. It turns the beautiful, holy, sexual relationship between a husband and a wife into something wrong and twisted and idolatrous. One of the lies of homosexuality is that you can fulfill God's purposes and design for human sexuality by ignoring male and female complementarity. They say it this way, love is love. Why does it matter who I love? Why does it matter who I love or who I have sex with? But that just isn't true. Homosexual relationships as with all relationships outside of God's good plan of marriage, cannot fulfill God's purposes and designs for sexual intimacy. This is clear anatomically. It is clear biologically. It is clear reproductively. You don't have to be a medical doctor to know that two males can't have a baby together. Not biologically. Two females can't procreate. And yet, despite the clarity, it's clear as day that a divinely designed and ordained union can't be achieved between two men or between two women. There are many who still pursue it in defiance of the evidence, in defiance of what is clear. And in doing so, they exchange what is natural for that which is unnatural. And they do it because they have already exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And once they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, 
they'll accept far lesser lies, right and left. Listen to how commentator J.V. Fesco summed up this passage. He says, what ultimately lies at the heart of God's judgment is false worship. Man turns to worship the creature and things made by his own hands rather than the creator. So God abandoned him to his idolatry. Man turns to worship himself. If unchecked, sinful, idolatrous man will look into the proverbial mirror, fall in love with himself, worship himself, and engage in idolatry through unnatural sexual relations. Sinful humanity, male and female, turns and worships itself and becomes smitten with its own image. I'm not going to love and pursue and be intimate with what God has made for me in someone who is different than me, in someone who compliments me, but rather I'm going to love and I am going to be sexually intimate with someone who is just like me. It goes back to idolatry. And the sad result is that those who do so receive in their own persons the due penalty for their error. They bring shame upon their body and they receive in, within themselves the due penalty for their sin. This is the principle of sowing and reaping that God has built into the created order. You sow disobedience, you're going to reap a penalty for that. Now what exactly is this penalty? Well, it's not exactly clear from the text. It could be the penalty of the sin itself, which means being outside of God's good plan for us and not enjoying the blessings of obedience generally. Or it could also mean that abandoning God's design and purposes has serious consequences for us emotionally, mentally, relationally, and even physically. Now in verse 28, Paul moves beyond the sin of homosexuality as an example of human depravity that results from exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Up to this point, some of you may have been going, I'm glad it's not me. None of this applies to me. I don't have that problem. I'm not faced with those temptations. I can't really relate. Well, you are not without sin. You may not be guilty of the sin of homosexuality, but you are guilty of sin nonetheless. We are all on the same sinking ship. That's Paul's point in this passage. You may think you're better than those who have other struggles. You are not. You are just as guilty before God for the sin of gossiping as the sin of homosexuality. So let's see what Paul has to say as we delve deeper into the darkness of human depravity. Romans 1, 28. He says, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Humanity in its rebellion against God did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. And so God didn't see fit to acknowledge humanity any longer, so to speak. He gives them over. 
Humanity failed to honor God and give Him thanks, Romans 1.21. And so God gives them over. This is a restatement and a retelling of the same truth of verse 21. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so God did not see fit to acknowledge them. And He gives them over. Gives them over this time to a depraved mind. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts in verse 24. He gave them over to degrading passions, verse 26. And now He gives them over to a depraved mind, verse 28. Thrice given over. Thrice abandoned. Now we think of the mind as being the seat of the intellect. So what is a depraved mind? Well, in Scripture, mind means much more than just the intellect. Much more than just our thinking. In the Bible, the mind is the center of moral reasoning and willing. It's very similar to and overlaps with the biblical idea of the heart, which is like a person's mission control center, the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. And so a depraved mind is a worthless mind. It's a mind that's been tested and shown to be worthless for the purpose for which it was created. Worthless for the purpose of discerning truth from error, right from wrong, good from evil. Having been given over by God to a depraved mind, they then do things that are not proper, things that are not fitting, things they shouldn't do, things that are outlawed by the law of God. What kinds of things? Well, Paul gives a whole list here. What a grocery list, huh? 21 sins that stem from a depraved mind. This is what we refer to in the Scriptures as a vice list, a list of vices. And there's a number of these in Scripture, and Paul uses vice lists all the time, but this is his longest one. And thus, it's the darkest one. 21 sins that stem from a depraved mind. Paul doesn't intend this list to be comprehensive. He's not listing here or even trying to list every possible sin known to man. That would be quite a catalog. Rather, this is a list that is merely representative of the kinds of sins that flow from the idolatry of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. So let's quickly break these 21 sins down. I'll just take five minutes on each, okay? (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Many of them overlap, all right? And Paul is not trying to slice this thing so finely that you can distinguish one absolutely from another, all right? The first four are more general in nature. Unrighteousness, wickedness, and evil. And all are good general descriptions of sin and of depravity. Greed is in there, in the mix. And that may seem a bit out of place and a bit too specific given the generality of the other terms. But greed is fundamental to all sin. Because whenever we sin, we sin because we want something we don't have. So at its heart, all sin is greed. We want something we've not been given. We want something we've not been allowed. In fact, in Colossians 3, 5, Paul even says that greed is tantamount to, equal to, idolatry. 
It's the exchanging of truth for a lie. So the first four sins are general and can really be used to describe every kind of sin. Umbrella terms, if you will. The next five sins relate to envy and its consequences. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Sounds like some church meetings I've heard about. Not ours, thankfully. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, sin separates people from God and from one another. You can't have a broken relationship with God and have perfect relationships with others. It doesn't work that way. The next two sins, gossips and slanders. Gossip and slander. With that, the net just got spread more broadly, didn't it? Didn't we all just get sucked up? You say, I never murdered anyone. You ever gossip about them? You ever slander them? Are we not all guilty? Oh, maybe you've whitewashed it, you've papered it over, and you've said, well, I was just sharing a prayer request. Doesn't change the reality of the guilt. The reality of the sin. Sins of the tongue which destroy the reputations of others. The next four sins seem to focus on arrogance and pride. And of course, pride is at the root of all sin. Like greed. Like idolatry. These arrogant, prideful ones are haters of God. They are insolent. They are arrogant. They are boastful. Pride says, I know best. Pride says, I'll go my own way. Thank you very much. Pride says, who are you to tell me what to do? The next two seem to be joined together because in the Greek they are made up of two words. Inventors of evil and disobedient to parents. Inventors of evil. God is a creative God. Look around the world that He has made and you can see that. And He has made us in His image. We are creators, all of us. But like all of His good gifts, we twist it and we cause it to be misshapen and ugly. Instead of creating things for the good of others, creating things that are beautiful, true, and good, we are inventors of evil. No shortage of the creativity that has been put forward to do evil things, to create evil instruments used for evil purposes. Disobedient to parents? Well, now we're all guilty, right? Uh, kids are disobedient to parents. Kids, that's not a, a permission to be disobedient to parents, but it's a fact, right? That we're all sinners and that even from the youngest age we have grown up in homes with parents and we disobeyed them. It's put on the same list as murder, <laughs> homosexuality, Inventing evil, disobedient to parents. 
The final four sins are grouped together because they are without words. Without sense, without honesty, without love, without mercy. Senseless, faithless, loveless, merciless. It's quite a catalog of sins, isn't it? Again, perhaps when we were talking about homosexuality, you thought, yeah, that's not my struggle. That's not me. But in this list, we've all been rounded up and found guilty. The exchange of the truth of God for a lie has led to the exchange of what is natural for what is unnatural, what is righteous for what is unrighteous, what is good for what is evil. And we're all guilty of it. We have exchanged that which is righteous for the unrighteous, that which is pure for that which is wicked. We have exchanged contentment for greed. We have exchanged holiness for evil. Friends, this is humanity. This is all of us. Apart from God's redeeming grace in Jesus Christ, this is us. We are filled with all unrighteousness. That's what Paul says here. All unrighteousness. That's what theologians call total depravity. Sin has affected every part of who we are and has left us in the dark chasm of idolatry and rebellion. It has twisted our souls. It has twisted our ability to reason morally on our own. It's made it impossible for us to be able to discern between good and evil, right and wrong. But sadly, that's not all. We can go deeper still into this chasm of depravity. And that brings us to checkpoint number three. These many sinful exchanges are encouraged and celebrated by fellow sinners. Verse 32. Look what Paul says there. Romans 1.32 And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Again, Paul states here that sinners clearly know these things about God, that He exists, that He's given us His law in our hearts and through our consciences, and that the just penalty for ignoring His law, for disobeying His law, is death. We all know this. God has set eternity in our hearts. He's given us a conscience. He's given us evidence of His existence. And He's given us evidence that we are accountable to Him. And that we are deserving of death because of our disobedience and sin. We know we're guilty. We know that we'll face a death sentence. And eternal death in the fires of hell. But not only do they persist in their sin, despite the knowledge of their guilt and the sentence that is coming, they actively encourage others to sin as well. They give hearty approval to those who practice these evil deeds. Friends, this is how civilizations crumble. This is how nations fall under the weight of their own sin and depravity. They legalize, institutionalize, and incentivize sin. And they come down hard against those who have the temerity to oppose them. This is the collective societal effect of individual human depravity. 
Listen to what Al Mohler says, quoting theologian, or rather a man named Theo Hobson. I don't think he's a theologian, but his name is Theo. Al Mohler, quoting Theo Hobson, says this. He describes the three necessary steps for moral revolution, all right? First, what was condemned must be celebrated. Second, what was celebrated must now be condemned. And finally, those who will not join in the new celebration must now be condemned. This is precisely what we have going on in our culture and society today. Particularly with the sins of homosexuality, transgenderism, and abortion. But you can see it in other ways as well. What was once condemned must now be celebrated. What was once a matter of shame and kept quiet is now celebrated. Pride Month. We've dedicated a whole month for people to be proud about their homosexuality, to celebrate it, and for us to celebrate them. Shout your abortion. Don't be ashamed of it. It's a woman's right to choose. Further, what was once celebrated must now be condemned. Traditional morality, purity, holiness, sanctity of life, these things that were once celebrated must now be condemned. You're now considered full of hate and bigotry if you don't celebrate homosexuality and if you don't support a woman's so-called right to choose. And if you refuse to join in these new celebrations, you will be condemned. You could be canceled. You could be shunned. You could lose your friends. You could lose your job. Your bank might drop you. The government might come after you. Say the wrong thing in the wrong place to the wrong person. You could be reported. More and more, the forces of culture and society and business and government and entertainment and sport are all being harnessed and orchestrated and weaponized to promote and celebrate what God clearly forbids. And God pronounces a woe of judgment over nations that participate in this kind of moral reversal Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to you, nation, who exchange the truth of God for a lie. Proverbs 17.15, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Because it's not in accord with the truth. It's not in accord with reality. It's a denial of the way things really are. To call good evil and evil good. It's an affront to God because it's an attack on God. It's an attack on the truth of God. It is an attack on the person of God himself who is the God of all truth.
God hates this kind of moral reversal because it's an upending of His truth and an upending of His purpose and designs in creation. Here at the closing verses of chapter 1, we see the dark chasm of human depravity. Depravity that begins with the rejection of God and the embracing of lies. Depravity that is compounded by God's judicial abandonment of sinners to themselves, to their own sin, to the sinful desires of their hearts. Depravity which expresses itself in all kinds of sinful thoughts and deeds that are clearly unnatural and not in keeping with the truth. Depravity which if repented of will, if unrepented of, will certainly lead to death. A death sentence. And yet, from the darkness of this chasm of depravity into which we have descended, at the end of Romans 1, we can look up and see the glorious light of God's gospel overhead. From Romans 6. Where Paul says in verse 23, for the wages or the payment of sin is death. The just penalty of sin is death, eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You don't have to stay in the darkness of your own depravity. There's enough light trickling in to that deep chasm to show you that there's a way out. There's a way forward. There's a way ahead. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. This one verse is enough light to lead us out of the depths of human depravity and into the shining mercy and grace that is found in Jesus. But you have to first recognize the dark chasm you are in. You have to first recognize your helplessness to reason your way out of it because of the depravity of your own mind. And then, by faith in Christ, reject the darkness and move toward the light, the light of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for giving us hope in the midst of our guilt and our sin. Hope that is not found within us, It's not found in our ability to climb out of the hole that we've dug for ourselves. But it's the hope of Jesus Christ who came and with His cross, with His sinless life and substitutionary death has provided the way for us to come out of the depths of our depravity and to be made new into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for this great mercy and this great grace. My prayer is today that anyone here who is still in the darkness of depravity will see the light of Christ and by faith trust in Him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.